Welcome to another episode of Dakota Spotlight. I really appreciate you listening and would like you to know about Spotlight Plus. It is a subscription to Dakota Spotlight that provides bonus content, early access, and ad-free listening, all while supporting my work and the show you love. You can subscribe right in the Apple Podcasts app or visit dakotaspotlight.com. You're listening to Dakota Spotlight, a production of Forum Communications. My name is James Wollner. This is Season 6, Vanishing Act, the untold story of Kristen Deedy and Bob Anderson. And I'm Jeremy Fugelberg. A quick note, this episode contains content that may be alarming to some listeners. Check the show notes for more detailed descriptions, and please, take care of yourself. And if you're listening with children, consider whether it's appropriate for them as well. This is episode four, Looking Over Her Shoulder. Kept her children close to her because she was afraid of him. More so than I have ever seen somebody be afraid. I, I drove away, and she put her foot directly underneath my tire. I could see this was probably a little more complex. For one thing, the imbalance on power. This episode is all about control, specifically control of Kristen Deedy. Now, yes, this podcast is about how she and her boyfriend, Bob Anderson, vanished in 1993. But if there's one thread James and I find ourselves following as we investigate this case, it is this. Who controls Kristen? Ultimately, as you know, Kristen and Bob were never found. Authorities believe they were murdered. When you think about it, murder is the ultimate act of control over someone else's life. It overrides someone's basic rights of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, to make their own choices, their own way. Murder is an act that determines whether a life continues or is snuffed out. Control. As you listen to this episode, keep asking, who is in control of Kristen now? If you recall from episode three, when we last left her, Kristen had separated from her husband, Clyde. Court records we obtained indicate they split in September the year before. And she had met a new man, Bob. He seemed the complete opposite of Clyde in all the best ways. Kristen was opening up more, gaining confidence. She seemed headed toward a better life on her own terms. But her marriage with Clyde wasn't yet over. They still lived in the same town. They still had two children together, Mitchell and Deanna. We don't have a lot of details about the internal dynamics of Kristen's relationship with Clyde. In fact, Most of what we do know about their relationship comes from the end of it, from Kristen's new neighbor friends and other women who helped her. We intended to ask Clyde about his marriage when Jeremy interviewed him recently, but he cut the interview short. I just called him again this week with several crucial questions, including about his relationship with Kristen. He declined to speak with me. On his behalf, it's safe for us to say that Clyde likely objects to the characterizations of him throughout this episode. Kristen was living with her children in an apartment in Bloomington, Minnesota. 
She befriended a woman who lived upstairs, Heather. You've met her in an earlier episode. But in this episode, we're going to dive deeper into what her friends noticed about the newly single mom of two young children. And it was hard to miss. Kristen was cautious. She was careful. Here's Heather. We heard her tell us about this in the last episode, but it's important that we note it again now. She was just really close with her children. Um, she didn't really um, even let them like come upstairs to my house, um, and she would call, even though she was just right downstairs. Um, and so she really got to know us, uh, my girlfriend and I, and um, she was very, uh, very protective of them, and they were very close to her. Now, we pulled a background check on Clyde. Background checks have a lot of information, but they don't tell you everything. Not really. They can be both helpfully specific and frustratingly without crucial context. Here's James and I, looking over the background check for Clyde. Oh, and a quick note. In the next clip, James mentions a video. That's a home video from Bob's family, showing Kristen and her kids hanging out with Bob and his family in 1993. I'm just trying to figure out when he was where. So we know... Do we know the exact year that he and Kristen moved to Bloomington? We know they got married in 83, right? Yeah. I mean, the first, so the first Minnesota address, well, I guess it's a P.O. box in Breckenridge. That's in August of 89. Yep. August of 89. He has relatives there as well, we know. Um, a brother, for example. The next active address, or was active anyway, is that Lindell Avenue apartment building, which is Kristen's last apartment, basically, where her friends Heather and Tiffany, especially Heather anyway, were as well. That's the apartment. And interestingly, there, look, October 1990 to August of 93, the month Kristen disappeared. So, okay, so let's say they moved there. It says October of 90. So they moved there in 90. According to the divorce decree, they were separated in 92, but we know Kristen was still living there through, I mean, when she did, when she drove to North Dakota. So that would have been August. Mm -hmm. But Clyde would have moved out by then. Um, he would have had to have. Look at that entry, that Pleasant Avenue. That's from April 93. We knew at some point he moved out. Um, right. And I'm not sure the exact timing. I'm actually going to pull up that address and see what it is. It's two minutes away from the apartment. Oh, it's just around the corner. So literally, he could... He could have just been out there at the moment's notice. He just was a, just a few blocks away, effectively. I mean, the other charitable construction is, like, his kids were still there, and, you know, he's still their dad, and yeah. it's a lot easier <laughs> making that work when you don't live on the other end of town. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and then the next one up is March 96. Looks like winter South Dakota, assumably to open this chiropractic uh, business where he is to this day. Hello, dear listener. This is James, host of Dakota Spotlight, inviting you to subscribe to Spotlight Plus. For as little as $5 per month, you will get the warm feeling of supporting the show and also unlock access to bonus episodes. Get the episodes early and listen ad-free. That's right, no more ads. Apple users can subscribe to Spotlight Plus Standard right in the Apple Podcasts app. 
If you want to dive deeper and get even more exclusive benefits, subscribe to Spotlight Plus Premium or Spotlight Plus Ultimate. Go to dakotaspotlight.com for more details. We're now going to turn to court records. James obtained these from the Minnesota court system. Um, so this is register of actions, but basically what we're looking for is, uh, or what we're seeing here is a court record for Clyde Deedy. Single charge, assault, fifth degree, in parentheses it says domestic. Uh, lists it as a misdemeanor and says the date of that incident is February 10th, 1993. So, okay, so what are we, so, okay, events and orders of the court. So what are we looking at here? What's... Okay, so we it starts out with February or March 26th. Just says judici- judicial officer Thomas Wexler... Assault, fifth degree, domestic. And then it says not guilty, which I assume that's his plea, right? Not guilty. Yeah. So this looks like, a yeah, there would be an initial hearing. Like, how do you plead, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and then if he says guilty, that's one thing happens. And if he says not guilty, then presumably then you set a trial date, which I think is what happened here then. So not guilty, time to set a trial. Yep. And they set a trial date for... May 25th with, uh, let's see, Franklin J. Knoll was the judge. So about two months out then. The assault occurred on February 10th, according to this documentation. He pleaded not guilty on March 26th in court, and then the trial was set, uh, took place on May 25th. So a month and a half to the initial hearing from the incident date, and then about two months to the trial. Again, we don't know when exactly when Bob and Kristen met, but we just learned that it was that spring. So, well, actually, we have that video now. <laughs> yeah, that was in May. Uh, no, you're right, though. That May... What, what date was that video? Let me take a look here. I'm going to download it okay. again. May 31st, 1993, is this video where we see Kristen wow. and Bob together at... I don't know if this is Dean's house. I think it's Dean's house. It could be... Uh, Bob's parents' house, but May 31st, so that's one week after after the trial, yeah. The trial. Yeah. That's interesting. So I think it's safe to say they met <laughs> before the trial, you know. Um, yes, I doubt this was their first meeting. In yeah. this in this yeah. video, they're hanging out like they know each other very well, very, very relaxed with each other. You know, they've... And hanging with the family, right? <laughs> I mean, it's not a first time. So... We don't know if they knew each other in February when the assault took place, but they very well may have. James sought more specifics from the court system, such as court reporter records from the hearing. He was told they had been destroyed, a standard procedure with some records. We're still seeking more information, such as a transcript of the hearings. We'll update you if we get that. If you recall, I talked to Clyde a few weeks ago on a bad phone line. I was asking him about what happened that day in February. Uh, domestic violence uh, charges that were filed against you. Can you can you tell me any more about those or, or what happened there? No, there were not several domestic charges filed against me. She... Um, I, I drove away, and she put her foot directly underneath my tire. And uh, there was an issue about that. 
but uh, you know, I I don't care to talk about something of that nature. It's just not um, something I want to dredge up. Notice who did what, according to Clyde. It was Kristen putting her foot directly underneath his tire. Her action. Her choice. We'll come back to this later. But yes, Clyde was definitely right about one thing. There was an issue with what happened that day. Kristen sought out help, this time from Cornerstone, a domestic abuse shelter and advocacy program in Bloomington. Well, when she when she first came in, she said that he had run over her foot, and she was very uh, distraught, and she was a, afraid of him. She, it was hard to read. This is Molly. She was working as an advocate at Quarterstone and became Kristen's caseworker, helping her as she figured out what to do about Clyde. He was I, he was threatening, and at that point, she would come to see me. Oh, two or three times a week, even maybe more. I don't know. And um, she would bring any mail that she had, and we'd go over that together. Any any court documents that she had, she'd bring those, and we'd go over those things together. And um, and she then and she really was wanted to pursue this um, this uh, this assault charge, this misdemeanor charge. It's important to note, many incidents of domestic violence go unreported and unprosecuted. Reporting domestic abuse can place the abused family member in a perilous position, because it'll be obvious they spoke with the authorities. But for prosecutors to make a case, it often requires the family member to step forward. Even then, such cases aren't automatic slam dunks. For Kristen, it seemed, this had been the last straw. It was time to take action, despite the peril it could place her in. The um, prosecutor was great. He was a real gentle guy, and actually her judge turned out to be a very gentle man, too, and they were all very, very supportive of her and guided her through, uh, through the process. This took months. Seeking justice isn't always a quick process, especially for a woman without much means from another state trying to get out of a bad relationship. Kristen needed all the help she could get. Here's Molly mapping out the difficulties here at length. I could see as time went on that this was this was probably a little more complex than uh, many cases. For one thing, the imbalance in power. Here Clyde was. He was graduating from chiropractic college, and I and and I'd heard that you know she had told me about her family growing up and how she changed her name. She told me that eventually and uh how she really just didn't want any contact with her with her with her biological family at all and um and then and then when she'd come in and she wanted me to help her with with all this paperwork I just thought oh my gosh this is this is tough you know she's Clyde has really got control over her because he he here he's getting his chiropractic degree and I'm not even sure she's got a high school education it seems Cornerstone quickly became a haven for Kristen and her young children, Mitchell and Deanna, a support system unlike anything else she had. 
I could tell that she really didn't, she had these girlfriends, but she really didn't have anybody. She didn't really have a support system like a lot of people have at all. As we saw in the court records, Clyde was charged with a fifth-degree misdemeanor, domestic assault. A fifth-degree misdemeanor is the most minor misdemeanor charge, and for a first offender, doesn't usually come with particularly stiff penalties. At his initial appearance in March, about a month after the incident, he pleaded not guilty. A trial date was set for May 25th. That day arrived. Molly was with Kristen in the courtroom that day as Clyde stood trial. When we went before the judge, um, he, Clyde got up. He said no, that he, he wasn't guilty, that he, if he really wanted, what struck me the most is if he really wanted to hurt his wife, he could because he knew where all the pressure points were. And then he started, or where, maybe not pressure points, all the, all the places where you could really uh, do damage. He said that to the judge. And he actually said that like three or four times. At that point, the judge said, "You, I don't think you get it, and uh, I'm going to give you uh, three weekends in the workhouse. Let's go back to the court records, which list out very clearly the punishment meted out to Clyde. So again, trial date was May twenty fifth, mm-hmm. um, and what the result of that was, the judge says. I mean, it's listed as convicted. Yeah, exactly. And then two days later, he was sentenced. What are the conditions here? Yeah, so these are these look like conditions of the sentencing. They almost look like basically two year probation. No violence or disturbed peace violation. So, like, basically, he couldn't get in any trouble, right? Like, couldn't get in any violent situations or disturb the peace for two yep. years. Yep. Does that sound right? And then the next one, Mrs. Didi, which is Kristen. Mm-hmm. Um, no contact with victim. 527-93 to 527-1995. That's two years. Again, yep, two years. No no contact with Christ, or Mrs. Didi, it says. May contact children only. There's a couple more there you want to... Let's see. Incarceration comment to serve two consecutive weekends. Also report June 4th, 93 at 7 p.m. and release June 6th, 93 at 9 p.m. June 4th, 1993 was a Friday. So he had to be there at 7 p.m. on a Friday and he was released Sunday at 9 p.m. So a weekend. Yeah, there's some, you know, some conditions here, the workhouse conditions. But, you know, as long as you follow these probation conditions, uh, then you're not imprisoned. Supervised probation. Yeah. Yeah. And for two years. So basically two years, you got to be on good behavior. You can't talk to your wife. You can contact your kids. You can't be caught, basically, uh, committing violence or disturbing the peace. You get a violation for disturbing the peace. Uh, Yeah. 
it's just it's quite a lineup <laughs> kind of a stack of things here Susan, who you've met in a previous episode, was at that time the executive director of Cornerstone. She recalls Molly's feelings after the judge ruled. I mean, when when Molly came back from court, you know, for the the, the order for protection hearing, she was just flabbergasted um, that the judge did what the judge did because that was not what would normally happen with a first offense. Molly again. You know, the problem was huge, and it, for, for the, what he was charged with, that's all that he could be charged with. That was probably the most he could be charged. Molly's report about Clyde's behavior in court really struck Susan. She was appalled, as were other people in the courtroom, at his his behavior was combative and he was accusatory. He was just so out of line, so out of control, which basically gave the people there the impression that this is a man with a violent temper. Up next, Kristen's Summer of Fear. Now, back to episode four, where Kristen's estranged husband, Clyde, had gotten a stiff sentence for domestic assault, a fifth-degree misdemeanor charge. He would spend several weekends in a workhouse, and under the two-year no-contact order, he wouldn't be allowed to contact Kristen. If he did so, he'd be violating the terms of his probation. Here's Jeremy again. May, 1993. In less than three months' time... Kristen would disappear. Clyde was still around. He didn't live very far away. And that weighed on Kristen. Fear is also a form of control. Heather, her friend upstairs, noticed, of course. All I can tell you is that there was a lot of fear. And that's why she always looked over her shoulder and kept her children close to her because she was afraid of him. More so than... I have ever seen somebody be afraid. Tiffany, the neighbor friend who you've met in a previous episode, had been growing closer to Kristen as a friend. It seems they had something in common. Here's what she said in James' extensive interview with her. So that's why she was kind of, um, kind of was really intrigued by myself and Heather, was were two very strong women. And we're type of women like, that ain't going to happen on our shift, you know, and she was, she felt very comfortable with us. I, I came from kind of an abusive upbringing myself. So we kind of bonded on that mm-hmm. at the time. And unfortunately, this all happened so quickly with like within months, my relationship with her um, and Heather and her's relationship was probably within a year. So it was just a little blip in time, but it made a big impression. on She made a big impression on us. As they bonded, Kristen told Tiffany more about her life, including her family. My impression was that um, Kristen came from a very small town and her parents were um, very controlling. She had issues. I'm thinking that 
that's how she ended up in a relationship with her husband because we go with what we know. And it was probably felt pretty comfortable at the time. And Kristen told her about Clyde. At least, some things. Kristen is very private, first of all. I just want to say she didn't speak a lot in front of her children. Um, and I only got bits and pieces of it because she really, I think, was embarrassed about the whole thing, you know, about her being with someone like that. But she told me just straight out that she was afraid and that he hurt her. And, you know, it just was a very scary situation and she's trying to get out of it. And she just wanted to be happy again. Really just wanted to be normal again and have a normal life. And But she always had this fear, you know. She told me he was very controlling um, and that treated her like um, she was his daughter, like, you know, ground her and do stupid stuff like that, you know. So she was, and she was scared. Her husband would say mean things, a lot of verbal abuse. So she was stupid and ugly. And, you know, unfortunately, when we're in those situations, we start believing that stuff. That no contact order was in place, but it seems Kristen had a hard time trusting it believing that it would make a difference. She was very secure finally, because I always felt like, and I didn't know why, um, obviously until the end, um, why she was like, always like looking over her shoulder and fidgety. But a clean break is hard to do when you're a mom navigating a separation, trying to make sure your kids keep their dad in their life. That was true here. Molly recalled that Kristen once brought her kids to Clyde's place so they could see him. She believed it was important they had a dad, Molly remembered. I asked Clyde about that two-year no-contact order when we spoke. It was a probation condition from his conviction for that misdemeanor assault. He didn't even seem to remember it. How did that work? Because you, from my understanding, is there was a no-contact order in place at the time. How did that work with the, the kids' handoff? I don't know about a no-contact order. So that's my understanding is one of the probation conditions uh, for you after that uh, domestic assault charge was a two-year no-contact order. Well, apparently it wasn't stipulated. There wasn't... I had no interest in... in contacting her in any way shape or form hmm. so when she turned up and left the kids I, you know, I had an opportunity to be with the kids for a while and that was um i was interested in it seems that wasn't the way Kristen saw it though there was fear there were signs of what Kristen had gone through but her friend tiffany didn't realize what they were until later here's tiffany back then um Luckily, I hadn't really dealt with domestic violence and stuff, so I was kind of naive about it. But since then, I've been in the situation. And so now I recognize when she the things that she was saying, I kind of blew off like, oh, yeah, you know. But I really understand that she was she was scared. Clyde could still see their children, Mitchell and Deanna. They were not part of the no contact order. And he and Kristen were not yet divorced. There was no child custody arrangement. He was still their father, their legal guardian. That was leverage, control. It terrified Kristen. She did not like the fact that 
he could just come and grab the kids and take them. Um, he was, she was afraid that he wouldn't bring them back. There was a time when he was coming for his visitation with his children, she, which she didn't like. But, you know, she also felt that she kept it away from the kids, what was really going on, that, you know, they had a right. He had a right to see his kids. Um, but I remember her saying that one of the weekends prior to this weekend, I don't know if it was because he found out about Bob. I'm not sure what the situation was. But she told me, I believe she told Heather too, I think we were all together, that he had threatened that, hey, if you don't do this or that or whatever, leave him. I don't know what this is, but you won't see these kids again. I'll take them and leave or whatever. The timing of this was important. It seems that Clyde may have known about Bob, Kristen's boyfriend, the new man in her life. And he likely saw or knew of how her life was changing, going out with friends, perhaps wearing her clothes differently, her makeup differently. Kristen was working hard, taking chances. She was taking control of her own life, her destiny. But her fear remained always there. A few weeks later, that trip on that mid-August weekend in 1993 to North Dakota, despite the concerns of her neighbor friends and allies at Cornerstone. Kristen and her boyfriend Bob make that fateful drive from Bloomington to Wishick, North Dakota, where they encounter Clyde and others, then disappear forever. Still to come in this season of Dakota Spotlight, Vanishing Act, the untold story of Kristen Deedy and Bob Anderson. I knew straight away that we wouldn't see her again. I knew that something bad had really happened up there. Where Bob's jacket was also found. It was a jacket that uh, my mom uh, stitched up and repaired for him, and she recognized it right away. Nobody was interested in, in pursuing this. Said that there's not a day that would go by that she didn't think of Bob. She'd get up in the morning and think of Bob, and then before she'd go to bed, she'd think of Bob. I feel your pain. I feel your pain. Dakota Spotlight is a production of Forum Communications. Remember, the investigation into what happened to Kristen and Bob remains an open case. Everyone is innocent until proven guilty in a court of law. 
If you have any information about this case, contact law enforcement at the Logan County, North Dakota Sheriff's Office. The number is 701-754-2495. Please consider subscribing to the podcast on Spotify or Apple or anywhere you get your podcasts. If you like this show and want others to discover it, please consider leaving a review and rating on Apple Podcasts. And why not join the Dakota Spotlight Facebook group? Just search Dakota Spotlight on Facebook. Thank you so much for listening. To support my work, get early access, listen ad-free, and much more, please consider subscribing to Spotlight Plus. Apple users can even subscribe right in the Apple Podcasts app. Learn more about Spotlight Plus at dakotaspotlight.com.